Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's our creed. James sums it all up for us. You want true religion? Here you go. Visit the widows and the orphans and keep yourself unstained from the world. Prioritize these actions. Do them over and over and over again. All other pursuits should pale in comparison to how we are fulfilling this calling as Christians since it's so black and white. This is religion. You should be a good mixture of an orphan champion, an old folks home caregiver, and a secluded monk. That's what we're trying to do here. That's what we should be aiming for. Uh, if you just do these three things, you will have biblical religion. This is how we prove that we are Christians, right? Okay, some of you are saying there with, with your eyes saying, shoot, I thought I came to Cornerstone. <laughs> what about the glory of God? What about preaching Christ crucified? What about the spiritual state of the world around us? What about living Christ-centered lives that honor him? What about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? We should probably be a little suspect of any preaching that sole message is strictly to do, 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 do. I know most of you are tracking with me. You know that before we jump into specific application of these verses, we ought to do what we normally do which is read the previous paragraphs leading into our text today, which you probably noticed we didn't do. I'm not sure that there's another New Testament book that is so mishandled as far as neglecting the context. And I mean that both of the book, but then also the context of all of New Testament scripture. And even bigger than that, the context of the Bible and jumping here and changing our meaning to meet what, mean what we want it to mean. Even one of my most loved heroes of the faith, Martin Luther, called the book of James a strawy epistle because of its slender evidence of the sola theology. He didn't like that James jumped straight to application and exhortation and admonition without a bunch of a doctrine included. It's important to remember for us that assumption on the part of the biblical author, James, is okay. In fact, it's good. He is drawing on the rest of what we already know to be true about Scripture, Jesus, and Christian doctrine now that the Spirit has come. The truth is that James assumes all the theology that we found already in Paul and in Jesus. So it makes us think then maybe we need to understand our context a little better. Perhaps it's on us to work a little harder to understand Moses and then all the way through as we see the prophets and we start to understand Jesus' words and Paul's, and as we take them together, we realize that when we approach one text of Scripture today, two verses, 
We cannot do so without the greater context of Scripture. This is not meant to be hard. This is meant to say, let's know the Bible together so that we can properly come to verse 26 and 27 and preach it as Christian Scripture, not as moralism. If we do that, we're no better than someone else trying to put up some good ideas. We preach Christ and Him crucified. So you did not come to this morning hearing you must walk out of here and the way that we save each other and the way we save ourselves is do, 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 do. We must remember the greater context. That is on us as Christian believers. We know that this word teaches us and when we hit verse 26 and 27, there's all that comes before it. So that being said, let us read from 19 down to 27. We'll pray and we'll start. Verse 19, know this my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, we join our hearts in prayer together, coming to you collectively as your corporate body, asking you to speak through your word today. May this be one section, Lord, of the whole. May it be one thing that drives us closer to seeing Jesus as infinitely valuable. May we walk away treasuring Christ. May we walk away changed. May your spirit change us to believe the truth, forsaking unrighteousness, repenting of our sin, and holding tightly to the cross. We thank you so much for your goodness to us in giving us your word, which we can preach to one another today. We thank you for the gift of the church to each other. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we exult in you this morning. Our boast is only in you and you crucified. We pray you are blessing your divine favor on the preaching of the text so that you would change us to make us more like Jesus Christ and that your kingdom would come quickly. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. I started today... Uh, kind of illustrating the common problem that we have when we come on a text like ours today. We come to a very practical, straightforward, like duty-bound text that seems so simple, we just jump straight to application. It's so easy to preach this one real hard, in your face, give you 16 things that you ought to do, 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 do. But again, the problem is that we react instead of remembering all that our authors already told us. Last week we learned that we must be doers of the word. That the one who has received the implanted word, the gospel, would have to be then a doer. That's what that person does. They would not forget, 
they would persevere and remember and act. I purposely pounded away last week at the essence of our passage to make sure that we would walk away not with a do this, but rather receive the implanted word, that we would see that that is the point and that that is what pushes us on to actually be a doer of the word. This is still the right way to approach how to be a doer of the word. Instead of giving you an enormous list of things to do, you could make one, I could make one that's pages and pages long. But as we push ourselves back here, we remember that the, the way to do this is only through receiving the implanted word. How to be a doer then is not something we talked about yet, but when we get to this week, we can't get away from it. Today we get to the ground level. Today we get to the nitty-gritty what's going on in real life and learn that it's not just all church talk, Christian philosophy, or allegory of how we ought to somehow live. Today, James gets very real, very provable. Last week, James established the clear teaching that when one truly receives the implanted word, he will act. He will persevere and is looking into the gospel and the message, and he will act accordingly. Now, James, what he does this time, he brings us to a position where we have to ask ourselves some very important questions that tell us the true story about what's going on inside. Are you a doer of the word? I can remember when I first hit high school and I was terrified about test taking. I'm sitting there, we have to take homework home, which is reading through textbooks, and then I have to take notes during class, and I'm accumulating all this stuff, and then I'm going to have to get tested on all this, and I'm terrified for how this works out. So I study and study and study. I was likewise surprised when the first test that I took in history class had 40 questions on it. I could not understand how it possibly could be that I had taken 40 pages of notes, and I had 40 questions. That was it. Kind of like, this is, this is it? This is the whole thing? Now, of course, there are a few teachers, particularly my chemistry teacher, who would test on every single thing that we covered, everything that was in the book, and every extracurricular type things that we had the um, allowment to study. Very nice of him. But most teachers, especially once I hit college and I went to grad school, when they would teach, when they would test, they would test on a very small amount of things. They would ask more on specific parts as a representative of the whole body of work that we had done. Trying to understand all of our knowledge by asking key questions to understand them. Something that would indicate to them what was going on behind the scenes, what I'd actually learned. As I look back, I realized that these teachers were asking questions that would tell them about everything that I'd acquired through reading, through listening to their classes, through my own work. They didn't have time or the ability to ask every single question that was necessary to be proficient at knowing a certain to topic or a subject. They wisely chose a portion of material, key indicators, and asked about these things so that they would be confident that I truly understood the material. For you that school is a long lost, terrible memory and you don't want to think about it, let's think about the business world or perhaps your job where you work. You may have be able to relate to this in business. In a good business, good executives or perhaps directors or even managers will ask and they will want to know what's going on inside their business. They will ask for key performance indicators. You may have talked about this in your work. Either I want your KPIs. Give me your monthly KPIs. Give me the things that tell us where we're at. You may call them metrics. You may call them numbers. 
Your group may do them weekly or monthly or quarterly. But what they are is the executive comes in and says, don't tell me everything. I want to know about these certain three things because that will help me understand all the rest of the health. And I can then take those things and tell, oh, you only have this number, why? Let's bury down in here and understand what's going on beneath the surface. A good executive or, again, a manager or a director is trying to understand through those things what else is going on. It's a very valuable metric to understand the bigger picture in a very quick, noticeable, meaningful way. James is going to point out some of the key performance indicators, the KPIs, for those that say they are doers of the word. That's what's going on today. In verses 19 through 27, James has delivered the wisdom that he has talked about already that we desperately need. He starts by telling us to receive the implanted word. Last week, he told us what it looks like to receive wisdom. It looks like one who is a doer of the word. That's his next step saying, it's not okay just to receive. It means then that you are a doer of the word. That's what it means to receive it. Not a forgetter, but a doer. Now we get to 26 and 27, these two verses. James will take us straight to where real life happens. He'll take us, in a sense, to the factory floor for more clarification, just in case we don't understand or need some help clarifying what doing the word looks like. No more theory, no more classroom answers. We need the numbers. We need the proof. Give me the indicators. James gives us three tests that will help show a representative sample of the larger picture so that we can understand what's going on. On the face, when I first come to this, when you're reading in James, I don't really like these verses. You may be similar, especially growing up. If you grew up Protestant, you're like, I don't really like these verses. They talk about religion. They talk about so much stuff that's externally focused. And I think probably the other reason I don't really like it is because it strikes at my own lack of obedience. I'm really honest. James helps us by showing that there are key things that from our performance of everyday worship that we need to check to see if they're actually things where we are acting like God acts. He is giving us a pop quiz. He's asking for our KPIs to understand if our external indicators are coming up positive or if we have some deeper problems that we really need to get down to. Do we have evidence of being someone who is a doer of the word? He helps ask the question, am I acting in accordance with the gospel of Jesus Christ? James asks three questions. Number one, do you have control of your speech? Number two, do you care for those who are helpless and afflicted in this world? Number three, do you strive to keep yourself unspotted from this world? At first glance, you're going to notice that they don't come across as questions, not in this text. But I guarantee as we look through this, you'll see these people are hearing this and saying, is this true of me? Is this true of me? Is this actually what's going on in my heart and my actions showing this? Am I a doer of the word? Instead of putting out three questions, he goes back and does it kind of James style and makes sure he gets a hold of their attention and he upsets their personal assumptions about who they are. They say they're doers, they say they're believers, but he's going to upset that and say, okay, let's give you some thoughts on this. Let me give you three tests. So you think you're a doer? Let's take a look at your external expression of religion. Let's talk religion. Verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious. Let's take a minute and talk this word about this word religious or religion in these, these other words here. 
It's a word that's rarely used in the Bible. Uh, it's probably due to the fact that it isn't a very helpful word for us to describe the whole of what it means to be a Christian. We see it, we found it in Acts 26.5, Colossians 2.18, and here. It's not a Christian word. It refers to worship in general, and especially the outward practice of ceremonies or performances to do good to a God. It is what can be seen of a person's religious devotion. James says, if you think you are religious, that your actions are consistent with the doing of the word, then your life will look a certain way. He says, you want to talk about KPIs? Let's talk about KPIs. He starts by showing that there is one thing that disqualifies you and your religion, according to him in his work. One thing that right off the bat shows us that you are deceived, that your so-called religion, and it is, what it actually is, is empty and worthless. What is that? It is whether you control your tongue or not. Whether you can control the way that you speak. Look at verse 26 again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. You'd think that the, the automatic disqualification would be blasphemy or adultery or murder or something really big, but no. He says it's whether you control your speech or not. Do you bridle your tongue? The analogy is vivid, right? We have a bridle and a bit that's used to control an animal, specifically a horse, a very large animal, far more powerful than any one human being. The bridle is used to control the horse for the purposes of the rider. The horse is properly bridled, and when it is, it's not in control. The master's in control. The idea here is to see if the so-called doer has control over their speech, or does their tongue do what seems most natural to them, flapping, going about like a wild stallion who runs and turns wherever he wants to, being useless to the rider and instead creating a pathway of destruction and damage. Has your tongue been submitted to the control of the master? Are you bridled? Have you bridled your tongue? Is it a member that has been submitted to the lordship of Jesus? I couldn't help but think of Romans 6.13. I'm going to read it to you. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members, your tongue, to God as instruments for righteousness. God gave you speech for the sake of praising him, for truth, for beauty, for love and communion with each other for laughter and encouragement and singing. God gave you speech for the sake of praise. So you play squarely in the control of the Holy Spirit. Or does your tongue roam free, unhindered, doing what it wants to do, not listening and unhindered by what God has to say about the way that your tongue should act? Now think honestly now. Does your tongue take part in gossip? Does your tongue belittle people, whether loudly to their face or quietly behind their back? Is it natural for you to jump into coarse joking, whether sexual or political or racial? Is your speech dominated by the first thing that pops to your mind? You just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk, having no ability to bridle your tongue. 
Do you embellish stories for your own purposes? Do you lie? Or do you withhold truth from your tongue? Is it true that you have submitted your speech to the Lord Jesus Christ and can say that by God's grace, I am fighting to bridle my tongue? It's hard, but I want to bring this member into submission as an instrument of righteousness for the sake of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we must bridle our tongue. For as we will learn in a few verses as we get on in this book, an unbridled tongue is a restless evil filled with deadly poison. And if you do not bridle your tongue, you're deceived. You're deceived into thinking that you're something that you really aren't. Is there evidence to show then that you are a doer of the word, not just one that's deceived? Check your speech, whether it is under control or whether it's unbridled and does what it wants to do. This is the first key indicator of what's going on inside. What's the second one? Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. We know what you can't do if you want to legitimately call yourself a practicer or a doer of the word, someone who is religious. Verse 26 told us you can't have an unbridled tongue. But what should you be doing? What does these external things, what do they look like? According to James, there are two major things. But before we get into them, let's briefly look at this phrase at the beginning of verse 27 here. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. What is this idea of pure and undefiled? What I want to do is give you kind of a Chris's amplified version of this verse. All right? Let me tell you what absolutely pure, moral, ethical, not just ceremonial, outward, but pure religion coming out of a heart that is single-minded, looks like according to God, who is the father of all creation. I'm going to give you this God's measuring stick to see if you're actually doers of the word. That's what we're talking about. If you are looking for religion, specifically pure and undefiled religion, in the eyes of the creator, the father God of all things, I can give you two more ways to tell whether you've got it or not. First, you must visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Jordan read for us Isaiah 1, and I know that, it, especially at the beginning of a service, we have a lot going on. I'm going to read almost the exact same passage again. I want you to listen. I'm going to read Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. Isaiah is going to point out the things that they are doing, almost all of them good at the beginning. Excellent things, ceremonial things, things that are outwardly shown that they are obeying. But Isaiah turns the corner and he's going to show them the problems with these. Let me read Isaiah 1, 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God knew their hearts. Isaiah understood. Oh, they thought they were doers. But the two people at the end of this passage, they say, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We're going unnoticed. Oppression. Though they were doing sacrifices, offerings, new moons and Sabbaths, appointed feasts, worship services, many prayers. They were practicing a lot of good stuff. Then the hammer drops. He says, wash yourselves. Seek to do justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What was it that got to God's heart of displeasure? What was he so upset about? Well, it's actually their rebellious, wicked hearts. But it evidenced itself so clearly in this clear indicator that was the way that they treated those who were helpless and afflicted. They didn't care for them at all. The fatherless and the widow. The orphan and the widow here then in James' usage of this word does not only mean orphan and widow. It is a typical example. He's showing you a type. These people are completely helpless. If you remember the book of Ruth, you remember that the book opens on a scene of great distress for these three women. They find themselves without a single option except to live beggars' lives, scrounging around behind the reapers on the edges of fields because their three husbands have died. They're destitute. James is using a typical example. Widows and orphans are helpless. They're not the exclusive ones that have to be cared for. There are others. The scriptures tell us the sojourner, the refugee, the Levite. Even Jesus goes as far as to say, and Leviticus, your neighbor. Why is this so important to God? Why is helping the helpless one who under affliction, why is this so important to God? that he would say this is one of the key performance indicators. I have two reasons that I think are helpful. One, loving the helpless is essentially what God is all about. What is it that, why is it that you adore God? Why is it that you want to repent and you want to please him as a Christian? Isn't it because he's done something for you that you could not do? Weren't all of us completely helpless? Don't we adore him because, like we see in Ezekiel 16, we were dying in a pool of blood and he looked to us and he said, live. He took our helplessness and gave us life. This is essentially who he is. This is what he does. He takes death and breathes life into it. He's all about this. He bought our salvation, the price being the precious blood of the second person in the Trinity, doing something that we could not do, substituting himself for us. The gospel shows us the one who reached into our helpless situation, literally we could do nothing about it, and changed everything. God is one who helps the helpless in their affliction, us. The second reason why it's so important to God, though, should not come as a surprise. What is the first and second great commandment according to Jesus? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
They are inextricably linked. They are together. They do not come apart. Anytime they come apart, we have a problem. And one is not being done correctly. The other one's also not being done correctly. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. This indicator couldn't be more direct outworking of the heart of God. We spent time at the beginning of James grasping the importance of seeing love for fellow man flowing from a true heart that loves God. Well, here we are. Do you love your God and do you love your neighbor? This is an easy indicator that shows us whether we love God or whether we actually love ourselves. You can, if you're not doing the second one, it shows you the truth of the first one. Do you visit the helpless in their affliction? This idea of visit doesn't only mean that we go by people's rooms to say hello and, and, and bring them some cookies. Oh, that'd be fine. That's good visiting. James says to visit the orphan and the widow, meaning like God visited his people and helped and provide them with aid. I'm gonna give you four examples. God visited Sarah and she conceived in Genesis 21.1. Joseph says that God will visit his people to deliver them from coming enslavement in Egypt. This is in Genesis 50.24. Naomi, we just talked about the book of Ruth. Naomi hears that God has visited his people and given them food in Ruth 1.6. James himself our man right here in Acts 15, 14 stands up and he talks about the fact that God had visited the Gentiles to give some for his name's sake, to save some for his name's sake. This idea of visiting is helping, providing, offering aid to those who are truly in need. Yes, financially, but there are so many helpless people who have what they need financially, but they need far more than money. They are truly afflicted. How are your indicators looking? Do you help the homeless people that you know and come in contact with? Do you help immigrants or refugees? Do you help single mothers with responsibility to raise children on their own? Perhaps even those that are rendered single due to a husband's deployment? Do you help those in crisis pregnancies? Do you give to those who you know are truly in need? They can't even pay the rent. Have you ever considered teaching someone and helping them to understand how to do something so that they can truly be helped, whether it's budgeting or putting together a resume or teaching them how to do simple tasks? Have you helped those who are afflicted? Have you considered adoption or being a foster parent? Do you show love and spend time with socially awkward people? Like I said, there are far more than just financial reasons to help the helpless. There are many who are afflicted. Do you give your time and your money and emotional energy to show love to those who cannot help themselves physically and mentally handicapped? Do you give of your time and your money in these ways? Do you help the helpless in their affliction? Brothers and sisters, may we not be the rightful recipients of Isaiah's condemnation and prophecy. Are you a doer of the word? James isn't done yet. Look to the third indicator. Let's read verse 27 together. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James has covered the tongue, right? This is an outward action. He's covered uh, visiting the helpless, helping them. This is a clear social action towards others. 
But now he turns to caring for one's own soul, to keep oneself unstained or spotless from the world. This is pretty straightforward. James is not talking about ritual purity, physical washings, or observances of abstinence. He is talking about constant pursuit of holiness, of not being conformed to the world, being unstained by it. This is spiritual spotlessness, true purity. He knows that we live and breathe in a real world that promotes everything that is evil and anything that is against God as its ruler. I can't do much better than refer us to Paul here. Romans 12, 1 and 2, you'll know it when I start reading it. I think on these things. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Truthfully, this passage gives us all the answers to combat being stained by the world. But what, it, what does it look like then in our life? How do you pursue being unstained by the world? Are you concerned with your own soul? Have you taken care of it? Sometimes being unstained by the world looks like removing ourselves from worldly activities, abstaining from worldly forms of work or entertainment, refusing to fill our minds with certain books or movies or shows or websites, or staying away from certain establishments that have a culture of ungodliness. This would do us much good. This may seem like an old-fashioned thought that we would never go to the theater, or we would not have a television, or that we would perhaps delete our Netflix account or stop or cancel our subscriptions to some of these services. Maybe we need to do that. Maybe we need to take a break from Instagram or Facebook. Maybe you need to stop hanging around a certain group of friends who influences you toward worldliness. If these things sound a little crazy and like they're really not meant for you, consider James' words and that they are written to us. A doer of the word is one who keeps himself unstained from the world. Do you take this seriously? Maybe we need to remove ourselves from some of the worldly activities that we find ourselves enjoying, but I will say this, there's also many times that we cannot remove ourselves from these worlds. Perhaps you need to cut some of these things out of your life. It will do you much good to be unstained from the world. But there's another side of this. What do we do about the problem when we kind of take the worldliness with us? When it keeps coming out of a heart that wants to please ourselves and do evil and rebel against God? Paul again here. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. The answer is more than just refraining from activities that promote worldliness. I'm not asking you to be an Amish person or a monk and pull away from everything and wear drab clothing. There is so much more at stake here that we must understand our hearts are the real problem. We need to be changed. We need transformation. The answer is more than just refraining. We need this and him to do it. How often then do you renew your mind? Every Sunday morning, 
How often do you meditate on God and his ways? I mean, really think about who he is and what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do. Do you consider his work, how, created, how he created this world, how he sustains, upholds it, and is in full control of every single atom? How he cares about the things that you do? Do you understand and believe that all of the Bible is true? Do you understand and do you renew your mind by reading it, understanding it, praying it, thinking about it? Do you preach the truth to yourself? Do you memorize sections of scripture that tell you the truth about who you are and the promises that he has made to his people and the exhortations toward holiness? If we desire to be renewed in our minds, we must sit at the Lord's feet. How else do you think it happens? Do you think just passively doing it is going to happen? Are we actively renewing our minds so that we be transformed and not be conformed, stained by this world? This is, an, this is a key indicator for us. Practically speaking, we've seen here, there are three questions for us to ask. Do you control your speech? Do you care for those who are helpless? Um, and do you strive to keep yourself unspotted from this world? When there are problems with your KPIs and you bring them to your boss, and he says, oh, I don't like this number, I don't like that number, what's the thing to do? We don't go back and switch the number and change the PowerPoint. No, the question is, what's going on with this thing underneath? How are these people doing this? What's happening below the surface? I need to know how you got to that number. What's happening on the floor? What are the core convictions that you have that you're practicing or not practicing as an organization? Now let's take it to us. What are our core convictions and the constructs or the methods that we use to live out what it means to be a person that's influenced by the gospel? How do we act like Jesus? This is where we should be going right now. And we've talked about this, these fundamentals and these convictions we already know from Scripture and from all of what James has told us to receive the implanted word, the gospel. But today, we're given these practical indicators of religious practice for us to see and clearly say whether or not we have something going on below the surface or not. This is not to tell the whole story about you. Let me make that clear, not even close. These three indicators don't tell your story. It's not as though if you get these numbers switched on the PowerPoint correct, now we've got all these things looking good, that the right things are happening below. One audit comes, and guess what? They see that nothing is happening on the floor that's actually the way it's supposed to go. No, these are key performance indicators to help us ask the right questions. Doing these three, three things do not make you a Christian. Let me say it again. Doing these three things do not make you a Christian. But they can certainly indicate whether there is a deeper heart issue below the surface or not. Use these indicators to ask yourself then, church, am I wise in God's eyes? Am I practicing true religion? Which brings us back to the heart of the matter. Am I a doer of this implanted word? Let's pray. God, we want to be those who have received the word and who persevere in the looking into your perfect law of liberty and don't forget about it, but rather act we want to be those, as we saw here, that can bridle our tongue for the sake of you. And we recognize that to help the helpless is to be like you. <clears throat> we want to be those who are unstained by this world as we pursue Jesus. None of these things, <clears throat> excuse me, 
make us right before you. Only Jesus makes us right before you. And we hold tightly to him. And it is to him we worship. We don't worship our works or the things around us or the methods, but rather we worship Christ and Christ alone who has the ability to change our hearts. May we love you truly, God, with a single mind that does not love all these other things. Would you draw our attention to you and help us to treasure you above all else? We praise and glorify your name. In your son's name we pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For other sermons on the book of James and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.